Our topic is Moses' faith and conversion, or we could say Moses' faith and obedience. Moses' faith and conversion. Our text will be uh, Hebrews eleven twenty four to uh, twenty eight or twenty seven, and I'll read a little bit more. I'm going to read uh, a little before that. Verse one. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were seen were not made of things which are visible. And then jump down to verse 24. We're going to look at Moses. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he, be lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And I'll stop there. Uh, I'm not going to be able to cover all this, but I'll cover quite a bit. The case of Moses and his faith is especially instructive due to his unique circumstances. Moses was born nearly 300 years after the death of Joseph. <clears throat> His birth coincided with the rise of persecution against the Israelites by a new pharaoh who had no respect or regard for Joseph, who was used to save Egypt from starvation. And, you know, he became second in command, and he, he, he got to rule the nation justly under biblical law uh, and protect the Jews. Moses was born to a Levite father, Amram, and mother, Jochebed. His parents saw that he was not an ordinary child. In other words, they probably knew he was specially called by God. And in violation of Egyptian law, they hid him in a floating basket among the reeds growing on the edge of the Nile. And you know the story. God protected Moses. And that the daughter of the Pharaoh rescued Moses from the water. And then in God's special providence, <coughs> she asked Moses' mother, Jochebed, to nurse him and take care of him. And even pays her for the service. So you see the sovereign hand of God protecting Moses. God honored the faith of Moses' parents by protecting Moses and having him raised in the palace of Pharaoh at the time, at a time when the Hebrews were ordered to murder all of their male uh, firstborn children. All the male babies were to be killed. So Moses was raised in an Egyptian home. He was educated with a pagan Egyptian education. He was taught the false religion of the Egyptians. Now Moses had an elder brother, Aaron, who was obviously born before this policy of killing the, uh, children, the males, who was three years older than Moses. <clears throat> It is likely that Moses' mother continued to help with Moses, and it was through his mother that he learned about his heritage and the true religion of Israel. 
Now, Stephen the evangelist in the book of Acts tells us that Moses, that Pharaoh's daughter took Moses away and brought her up as her own son. Acts 7.21. And then he adds this. Verse 22. Moses was learned in all the ways of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. From Stephen's speech, we learn that he was, it was not until Moses was 40 years of age that it came into his heart to visit his brethren. Acts 7.23 This age was the decision time. It was the time that he chose to side with the people of God over the Egyptians and even over his own Egyptian household. He had to forsake his mother. Moses' conversion to the true and living God would naturally coincide with this love of the Israel, his Israelites' brothers. And we know he goes to the fence of a brother and he kills an Egyptian and then he ends up fleeing and living and being a sheep herder for quite some time. It would also coincide with his desire to liberate his people. Moses shows us the reality of his faith in his life by what he refused to do and by what he chose to do. True faith always has a negative side in that faith repents of sin and rejects the world. Positively, faith embraces Jesus Christ and the true God and lives to serve him and help his people. So this is a, Moses is an excellent example of showing us what we need to do. The author of Hebrews lists Moses among the very greatest of those who live by faith in God. Moses is an excellent example of faith for us living in this wicked generation. For from a human worldly perspective, he had every reason not to choose the living God and his people. Now, from a worldly perspective. So let us carefully examine Moses' faith and obedience. There are a number of important matters to consider first. By faith, Moses rejected the world or repent, repented of his heathen mother and upbringing. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. <coughs> Moses was raised by a princess. He was identified with a palace and the ruling dynasty of Egypt. He was a highly educated prince of the rich and powerful Egyptian nation. If he had simply forgotten his Hebrew heritage and Yahweh, the God of Israel, he would have lived a life of incredible riches, pleasures, and power. The circumstances in Egypt were now far different than they were under the rule of Joseph. Due to God using Joseph as a prophet who saved the Egyptian nation from total starvation. Joseph ruled as the second in command, and the Israelites were a respected and protected people. They were under Joseph's authority. 
They were free to lead a separate God-honoring way of life and had no problems or fears of state interference or persecution. But now the situation is radically different. By the days of Moses, the people of Israel were despised, enslaved, and persecuted. They were treated with contempt. They were treated with dirt. Like dirt. The decision set before Moses was simple and stark. He could simply continue on as a prince of a powerful nation with all that that included, such as earthly glory, great political power, all the beautiful women he could ever ask for, the best food, banquets, parties, the choicest wines, and he's in a, as a heathen prince, the worship of the people. Or, he could side with the true God, Yahweh, the only living God, and take sides with the people who at that time were poor, oppressed, slaves, a despised people, hated, persecuted, with no power or riches or earthly glory at all. The antithesis between what Moses had as a prince in a heathen nation and what he would have if he sided with Yahweh against Egypt was about as radical as could possibly be. That's why this is such a great example. The antithesis is so incredibly clear and strong. Moses' example reveals to us that saving faith <coughs> involves a radical change of mind concerning God, Christ, sin, salvation, and the very meaning of life itself. And when we get to application toward the end, we'll talk about the relationship of repentance, strictly speaking, that is the change of mind and faith. Saving faith proceeds from a heart or mind that fully believes and agrees with the teaching of sacred scriptures. Saving faith agrees with the Bible's definition of God, ethics, sin, Jesus Christ, and salvation. It begins with a sincere, deliberate renunciation, rejection, or turning away from all that is opposed to God. So when you repent, you cast off the worldview of the world, and you put on the biblical worldview. And this involves a genuine determination to completely deny self and put off every thought, every word, or activity that is contrary to Christian doctrine and ethics. It involves a choosing to reject what this world desires and a willingness to submit to trials and sacrifices of following Christ. Moses' faith caused him to reject godless companions, an idolatrous religion, and even his own pagan Egyptian mother. When he left Egypt, he never saw his mother ever again. He left his nation, family, status, riches, power, and position behind because it was all incompatible to following the true God and siding with God's people. And the Greek word used here for refuse is very, very strong and means he emphatically and strongly rejected his position as an Egyptian prince. His decision was strong. 
His rejection of Egypt was a fruit of his faith in Yahweh and was obtained through great meditation and consideration of the truths of the true religion presented to his mind. He learned about the truth in a number of ways. He knew that he was circumcised and was a Hebrew. The Egyptians were not circumcised. He carried in his body the sign of the covenant between God and his people. Now, how long his real mother nursed him and then cared for him, we do not know. But one thing is clear. He learned about Abraham and Yahweh and the covenant people. He learned enough about the law and the doctrine of salvation by the blood of the spotless lamb to come to know that serving the true God and helping God's chosen people was totally incompatible with being an Egyptian prince who had to enforce the pagan law order and religion of Egypt. He could see that he had no other choice other than to follow God. Now Joseph and Daniel were placed in positions that were so powerful they did not need to compromise one iota and were used to protect God's people. But in Moses' time, the leadership of Egypt was set on oppressing and persecuting the people of God. It was a position where there could be he could not be a leader in Egypt without following the ways of Egypt. There is an application for Moses' emphatic rejection of the world that merits our attention. It is a crucial and blessed thing to have the core principles of orthodox, Bible-believing Christianity taught to covenant children. From the youngest of age, so that when they grow up and are exposed to the allurements and the false principles of the world, they have enough biblical knowledge to see the foolishness, vanity, and evil of the world system, and thus totally reject it. We look at what liberals are doing, progressives, and so forth, the Marxists among us, and it's absolutely insane. It's absolute foolishness. Yet they're spiritually blind and they're completely dedicated and committed to what they're doing. The negligence of most professing Christians in the United States who place their children in atheistic, antichrist, immoral state schools is astounding. People do it, they want to save money, I guess. You know, we're paying for it with our property tax. And they figure, you know, they, they figure neutrality's fine. They probably believe in neutrality. But all persons are born with an original sin and depravity. They have an inborn tendency towards sin and a lie. They are born rebels against God. Therefore, it is absolutely crucial for parents to make sure their children are indoctrinated with biblical truth from birth. And this is probably, very likely, what Moses true mother did. Moses, as a child of an Egyptian princess, had to attend the best pagan Egyptian schools. He was taught many things that were pagan and evil. But he had enough biblical truth in his mind for the Holy Spirit to use to expose the treachery, deceit, and wickedness of the world. Why do people fall away and apostatize? Because they like the world stuff. They like that. 
They like that worldview because they can live in sin and do whatever they want. They can live autonomously. But a true Christian, somebody understands the biblical world and life view and believes it, they're going to see right through that. Moses hated what God hated. Moses valued what God valued. Moses could not be fooled by the vanities and sinful delights of this world. He could not be fooled. Moses had a real personal faith that caused him to look at everything through the lens of Scripture. And this biblical faith caused him to act in a biblical manner. His faith was not a private or hidden thing, but rather changed his whole life. He realized that he now had to follow and worship and serve the only true and living God, Yahweh. And he could no longer side with Egypt. The old man, the old life, the old way of thinking were rejected for the new man, the server and lover of God. True faith always results in fruits meet for repentance. Very obvious here. True faith always results in a changed, sanctified life. True faith always rejects the world and those unlawful things that the world holds dear. If you are a friend of the world and do not have a changed life, your professed faith is worthless. It's worthless. The nature of true faith is set forth by Paul when he said this. Philippians 3, 7 and 9, But whatsoever things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Everything that Paul held dear that he was taught as a Pharisee, a very zealous, dedicated Pharisee, went right out the window because it was totally incompatible with faith in Christ and his righteousness. And then second, <coughs> Moses chose the life of a true follower of God even though that choice involves suffering, sacrifice, and self-denial. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, 11.25. In true repentance and conversion, there is a turning from the world, Satan, and a life of sin and vanity to the truth revealed in the gospel and scripture. There's a turning away from this and an embracing of this. Turning away from darkness, embracing the light. Turning away from lies, embracing the truth. The apostle preached this when he called on the Jews to repent and be converted so that their sins could be blotted out by Christ, Acts 3.19. Moses understood that repentance involved joining himself to a despised, oppressed people. We are saved solely by faith in Christ. We are declared righteous the moment we believe in Jesus. And we possess eternal life. But we are saved to obey God 
and follow Christ. It's not, oh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm saved now. I'll go to the bar and start some coke with my friends and pick up some chicks and, hey, man, I'm saved. Hey, everybody, I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior last night. I'm saved. How's that new coke you got there, Bob? Here, pass me that weed. No, that's not the way it is. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Matthew 16, 24. Those things that we used to do when we were, that were unlawful and unbiblical must be cast aside. Those friends that we used to have that were living the lifestyle of sin in the world must be left behind. Those priorities of the natural man, wealth for the sake of self-exaltation, worldly glory, the lust of the flesh, obtaining worldly pride and honor, must be rejected as unbiblical and vain. Jesus said, Matthew seven thirteen to 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Those who enter the narrow gate of following Christ, who walk that narrow path of true Christian, Christian discipleship, will not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1-2. They will not follow their own autonomous or worldly understanding. Proverbs 3.5 They will not follow a multitude to do evil. Exodus 23.2 So the majority of people in the United States, let's say the majority of women, say that abortion's great. So, that doesn't matter to me. That's evil. Or follow the customs of the people. Jeremiah 10.3 They stay on that narrow path by strictly following Scripture without departing to the right hand or to the left. Proverbs 4.27 Because of their faith in the Word of God and Jesus Christ, Scripture is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Psalm 119.105 What a difference. What a difference. <clears throat> when following Christ involves the disapproval of old friends, family members, and even their own parents, the true Christian does not hesitate to confess Christ and receive disapproval for it. We live in an age of secular humanism. We live in an age of hedonism. We live in an age of selfishness. We live in an age where young people complain if they don't get to murder their babies because they were fornicating and acting like wild beasts. We live in an evil age, a wicked generation, and they will disapprove of what you say and what you think. And that's fine. Let him. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 21 to 23, Now brother will rise up against, uh, now brother will deliver brother to death. And a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Our Lord tells us to count the cost of discipleship. Here's uh, Matthew 10, 37-39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We're not here for hedonism. 
And being a Christian is the good life. If you think these people all taking drugs and shooting heroin and partying all the time, if you think that's fulfilling and fun, and that brings meaning to your life, you're deceived. The denying of self in the old life is absolutely essential to be a Christian. Without it, one's supposed faith is worthless. The first commandment, which is the foundation of all the commandments, is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 5.7. I'm first in your life. The person who places his own interests, desires, and goals above God and the word of God will suffer the curse of eternal death. But the one who forsakes all to follow Christ and serve him receives eternal life because his faith is genuine, real, persevering. Think about Christ's words in Matthew 16, 26. For what profit is it, a man? is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The rich man, the adulterer, the fornicator, with his car collection and his many mansions and his billions of dollars, when he's on his deathbed, that will bring him no comfort at all. The people of God, <coughs> or church, with all its distresses, afflictions, and persecutions, is the only safe, holy, God-ordained body of saved people in the whole world. Outside the church, ordinarily, is no salvation whatsoever. The world despises the church because it testifies to the truth regarding Christ, God, and the gospel in a world of darkness and idolatry. The world, with its false wisdom and vain pleasures, cannot endure to hear the truth. They, can't, they hate it. They actually despise it. Sodomites, the Sodomite lobby, the progressives, the Marxists, their number one enemy is Christianity. Bible believing Christianity, because they know it stands up to their lies. Christians who are regarded as despised persons who are only guilty of believing in Christ and adhering to a perfect, absolutely just system of moral law. Having nice families, kids that don't commit crimes, who don't get divorced, who don't commit adultery. Boy, what a threat they are. You see how insane things are in our society? Where that is despised? Where black drug addicts and criminals are praised as saints and the police are condemned and they take the money away from the police and then crime goes up and people commit murder left and right? The people running our society are absolute fools. They're evil. They think like this. How dare they rock the boat of my idolatry, perversion, and blindness? How dare these stupid hicks tell me that being a filthy sodomite or wicked adulterer or fornicator or drunkard is wrong? How dare they? Therefore, they regard Bible-believing Christians as deplorable enemies of the state and their perverted version of equity.
They don't have the truth. Everything's propaganda and a lie. And they live on a lie. And they teach a lie. And they advocate a lie. And beloved, that's slavery to Satan. That's not, that's not a wonderful thing. And then third, let us note two of the central motivating factors that caused Moses to act boldly and decisively. Number one, he understood that the pleasures of sin are temporary. They're passing away. The Apostle John agrees, 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Faith understands that we have been given eternal souls and that one's position in eternity is far more important than serving pleasures in this very small, brief lifetime. I can remember when I was three years old, and you know those grocery carts and they have a little seat where kids can sit and their legs dangle out the thing? I can remember being in that seat and women in the grocery store uh, smiling at me. I can remember that. I can remember my crib, standing on my crib, holding the edge of the crib, looking out the window when I was supposed to be taking a nap. Life goes by in an instant. And yes, sin can be fun. It can be exciting. We do not deny this. But the pleasures of sin are for a very short period of time, only decades. That drummer for uh, the Foo Fighters, I'm sure he had a lot of fun touring all over the world and shooting heroin and snorting coke and smoking the best weed. But he died. He overdosed. We crucify the flesh and make incredible sacrifices in the present for our sanctification, our holy separation from the world, our serving of the kingdom of God. We know that our existence goes on after death and we must all stand before the white lustrous throne, the judgment seat of Christ. There's much more to this life. Temporary pleasures that are not lawful are not worth eternity in the outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Life is temporary. It goes by so fast. It's mind-boggling how fast it goes by. To ignore the final judgment and the penalty for a life of sin is incredibly short-sighted. And it's foolish. It's stupid. It's very foolish. What good are all the riches in Egypt? The choice of the most beautiful women of the land. The glory and the power of rule. The admiration of the masses and the finest palaces in the world. When one is dead and your soul goes straight to hell. Think of the rich man, the wicked rich man in, in, in Luke, begging for a drink of water, begging to go back and warn his brothers to repent. Moses looked at life, at reality from the biblical point of view. He understood that a time of accountability and judgment is coming. So we don't lie. We don't say that, you know, you know I, I was raised a pagan, okay? I, I took coke. I took heroin. I took drugs. It's fun. Super bad for you. It'll kill you. It'll destroy your brain. 
my memory's still shot from all the pot I smoked over 10 years. But it's evil and it's vain and foolish. And then number two, Moses looked at the final judgment and the rewards given for serving God. In 11.26 we read, For he looked to the reward. He had faith that if he denied himself in the present and rejected the pagan life in Egypt of an Egyptian prince with all that, you know, and he served the true and living God instead, he would be rewarded by God for it on the day of judgment. Now, this reward, it's not speaking about justification, which is something that Christ solely achieved by his sacrificial death and his perfect sinless life. He's talking about the rewards of grace that we receive for good works done on behalf of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Yeah, the Bible teaches this. I know it seems contradictory. Our good works merit nothing. Our good works are tainted with sin and, and, and far from perfect. But God rewards us in his sovereign wisdom. He rewards us for doing good works for Christ. Moses possessed eternal life the moment he believed. But due to the Lord's unmerited favor, he has sovereignly decided to give rewards for our service to Christ here on earth. Believers are rewarded on the day of judgment for obedience and good works. And this includes suffering on behalf of Christ. And Paul speaks of rewards for Christian service in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. <clears throat> Listen carefully. Because this is a motivation. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the old King James, stubble, each one's works will become clear. When? When will it become clear? On the day of judgment. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. You're saved by Christ, you're justified by Christ, but God does give good works. Does this mean you have to go be a preacher? No. If you raise a Christian family and produce a godly seed for the next generation, that's a great achievement. It's a wonderful achievement. There's, you know, be a good mother, be a good Christian mother, be a good Christian wife, be a good Christian husband, etc. The foundation is Christ. We cannot add anything to the perfect salvation that he has achieved. But once we are saved, we are expected to die to self and live for Christ. Moses continually kept his eyes on the things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 Corinthians 4.18 We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. you got to live by faith. Ephesians 2.10 For here we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once again, the priesthood of all believers. We don't, you don't have to go out and be a preacher or an evangelist or something. 
be just be a good Christian. Be a consistent Christian. Be covenantally faithful. The recompense of reward is something that God has revealed to us in his word to give us hope and motivation to habitually obey God's law and be covenantally faithful. I mean, look at the choices today. Young people today, they're not having they're not getting married, a lot of them. Or putting it off till much older. And they're not having children. We would go visit relatives in California and we'd go for a walk on the beach and what do you see? All these young people. They don't have kids. All these people, they don't have kids. They have dogs. No kids, dogs. Why don't they have kids? Because it involves sacrifice. A great amount of sacrifice. And it interrupts their hedonistic lifestyle. But if you're a Christian, we're commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and we're commanded to raise up a godly seed to serve Christ. So even though it is a great sacrifice, you do it. The recompense of reward is something that God reveals to us in his word to give us hope. As David says in Psalm 19, 9-11, the judgment of the Lord's the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, <coughs> yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. The recompense of reward also gives us hope and motivation to suffer for Christ and his kingdom. Note Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're a pagan and you have a pagan family, you're going to be reviled when you become a real Christian. And there are three things about Moses' kind of faith that we need to focus on, our attention on. A, <clears throat> he believed in the great truths based, of course, on divine revelation and God's promise. And that's, of course, the theme of Hebrews 11. He trusted in the future rewards with such firmness and assurance <coughs> it was as if he was beholding them right before his very eyes. That's assurance. That's faith. Strong faith. B. His faith placed a special value on the rewards in accordance with the biblical worldview. <coughs> Consequently, <coughs> he exalted these future rewards unseen rewards far above the present world that he could see and touch. That takes faith. That takes faith. Oh, I'm not going to party. I'm not going to do whatever I want and just live to have a good time. No, I'm going to follow the biblical Christian world and life view. I'm going to follow God's law and do what God is pleasing to God. That takes faith. <clears throat> and then see, his faith directed his behavior causing him to take decisive action against the world. This was the victory whereby he overcame the world, his 
faith. Well, what Moses did applies to every situation in life. It is especially important in times of great persecution and oppression when present sufferings are pressing hard upon us. We have it pretty good in America. Now, America's turning is rejected the Christian world and life view around the, about 100 years ago, and it's gotten worse and worse ever since. And then since the 1960s, it's greatly accelerated, where we're, the law order of America now is distinctly wicked and evil. Sodomite marriage, pro-sodomite, pro-child mutilation, transgender mutilation, no-fault divorce, all these things are absolutely wicked and evil. We need this biblical faith to give us hope and carry us through difficulties, trials, and persecutions of life. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, once we understand how biblical faith operates, we see the great rationality and wisdom of faith. Okay, we're always told by atheists, oh, faith is irrational. Faith is stupid. Why would anyone believe that's stupid? <clears throat> no, it's, faith is absolutely rational. Faith examines life, the future, options, and determines what to do through the lens of Scripture. And therefore, faith, <clears throat> faith's choices are always the only wise and rational choice. Why would I choose sinful pleasures for a brief season over eternal rewards, heavenly bliss, and the beatific vision of God himself for all eternity? Billions and billions and billions of years of happiness and bliss with God and Christ in heaven. Why would I choose uh, the sins of the world for a little brief season over that? That'd be absolute foolishness, wouldn't it? Why would I choose to follow Satan? The most evil being in the creation who hates God and really hates mankind and desires to destroy man and put all men into hell. Why would I follow him? Is not choosing God who is light and love and holy much more rational, more reasonable? Of course it is. Is not choosing to love and follow Jesus, who loved his people so much he was willing to die and suffer in their place, the wise choice. If everyone in the world hates you and curses you, you, the Christian, will always have Jesus on your side, loving you, caring for you, interceding on your behalf, and then, of course, in the Day of Judgment, rewarding you abundantly. There is no greater love and loyalty than that Christ has for his people. The secular humanist or atheistic naturalist always says that Christianity is irrational. But the exact opposite is true. Biblical Christianity is the only wise choice. It is the only true choice. It is the only rational choice. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to these lying atheist morons. They're morons. I'm not impressed by any of them. Yes, some are very good speakers. Some have presence. They have have charisma. But what they say is complete bullpucky. 
If we are to resist and put off the allurements of this present world, we must look through the eyes of faith to the world to come. Following Christ involves great sacrifices. We must deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. If we do not have faith, then it will be impossible to make the sacrifices that real Christianity requires. You don't see Christ preaching easy believism. He, he, he basically count the cost. Give up everything and follow me. Each of us has to choose between life and death, Deuteronomy 30, 15. Between sin and holiness, between the world and Christ, between friendship with the children of God and friendship with the children of the devil. <clears throat> Moses' faith and conversion is a striking example of the narrow gate and narrow way and the carnal temptations and worldly obstacles that had to be rejected by Moses to be a follower of God. What an excellent example Moses was. Moses' faith in God's word was the foundation of the whole building of his life. Do you have real faith? Then your life will reflect that faith by your dedication to Christ and his kingdom. If you're not dedicated to Christ, if you don't care about Christ's church, if you don't care about having a Christian family and obeying scripture, then you don't have real faith. <clears throat> and then fourth, <clears throat> by faith in the types, Moses looked to Christ and his suffering unto death as the source of eternal life. Hebrews 11.28 says, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. This ceremony or act of worship was instituted by Moses at God's command. To do it required faith in God's promise and obedience to God's command. <coughs> God told Moses that a destroying angel would come upon Egypt and kill all the firstborn in that nation, including the animals. The firstborn of everything was slain. The only way to be saved from the coming judgment was to sacrifice a clean lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorpost and the lentil. Essentially making the sign of a cross with blood. God spared the Israelites firstborn because they believed God's word and they obeyed it. <clears throat> The firstborn were saved because of the atoning blood of the Passover lamb. God was teaching the Israelites that salvation only comes from Yahweh and that it only comes by the way of, of substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> the Passover lamb was required to be perfect, unblemished, and the bloody sacrifice of the lamb and its consumption by the people coincides with the time the people <clears throat> were moved from bondage to liberty. They weren't saved by their good works. They were saved by God using the Lamb, that spotless Lamb that pointed to Christ. The New Testament teaches us explicitly that Christ and His redemptive work was symbolized by this event. <clears throat> the prophet John called Jesus the Lamb of God. John first. John 1, 29 and 36. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says that he is our Paschal Lamb. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. And Peter tells us that Christ's precious blood is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 19. The author of Hebrews says that through his death, he destroyed the power of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. Jesus has brought us out of spiritual Egypt, out of the oppression of sin, darkness, and idolatry. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and imputes his perfect righteousness to our account. The Passover was a sacrament. It contained a visible sign with a promise. The sign does not save. We emphatically reject sacramentalism. But it points to that which does actually save Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, dying and bleeding for sinners on the cross, rising from the dead victorious over sin. In Revelation 13.8, Jesus is called the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The Paschal Lamb was a type, a sign, or shadow, which pointed to the reality, the antitype, Jesus and his sacrifice. And the consuming of the roasted lamb was a type that pointed to the need to appropriate Christ and his perfect salvation by faith. <clears throat> As Jesus said, John 6, 53-54, and the Jews didn't understand this, but we do. Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's referring not to cannibalism. That's referring to faith in the person and work of Christ. Moses understood through the Passover that whoever is not sprinkled with the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, who is slain and sacrificed for us, is exposed to the righteous anger, displeasure, and judgment of an infinitely holy God. <clears throat> Jesus in his sacrificial blood alone gives us security from him, who has the power of death. Christ alone. Modern Jews who follow the heresies of the Pharisees teach that we're saved by keeping the law. Men essentially save themselves through merit, good works, turning over a new leaf. And of course, they may get some help from God to do this. <clears throat> but Moses, the God-ordained lawgiver, received and believed the gospel of salvation solely by Christ, received solely by faith. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 8-9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation by grace alone, achieved by Christ alone, and received by the instrument of faith alone is not simply taught in the New Testament. It is the doctrine of the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. Every fallen descendant of Adam who goes to heaven from no matter what era must enter through the door of Christ crucified. The only way to have your sins washed away is through that precious sacrificial blood of Christ. As we consider the Old Testament presentation of the gospel, there are some doctrinal issues that we want to clarify in order to avoid some common popular heresies that are found among professing Christians today, and then we'll wrap it up. <coughs> Number one, 
Moses' repentance, and we're talking about repentance in the strict term, or it just simply means a change of mind. Concerning God, Christ's sin in the gospel was coterminous with his faith. Coterminous with his faith. Repentance, strictly speaking, refers to a change of mind, and it is the flip side of saving faith. You can't change your mind about Christ unless you have faith. You can't have faith unless you repent of your old thinking. And this occurs through the gift of regeneration. So faith and repentance, in the strict sense, are called gifts of God. To reject one's old life and follow Jesus is a determination of the mind. This determination or motion of the mind, if sincere, cannot occur without saving faith. To reject the world and once past life and embrace Jesus as he is revealed in the scripture requires faith. We are saved solely by Christ and his work, and this perfect salvation is laid hold of solely through the instrument of faith. Number two, <coughs> the obedience that flows from faith is always associated in scripture with sanctification or a work of the Holy Spirit in us as he applies the word to our hearts, convicting us of sin and causing us to put off unlawful behaviors and replacing them with lawful biblical counterparts. This is the great era of the federal vision heresy where they mingle sanctification. And this is the era of Roman Catholicism, mingling sanctification and justification. <clears throat> the biblical behavior that rejects the world and one's wicked past lifestyle is a fruit of saving faith. It doesn't save. It's a fruit of saving faith. And it is a fruit of repentance. When many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to John to be baptized by him, this is, listen to what he said to them. Brood of vipers! Remember, these men were wicked. They taught salvation by works for one thing, but they also were crooks and they were getting rich off temple funds and so forth. Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Matthew 3, 7b to 8. They did not have a credible profession of faith because they had no fruits of repentance. The Bible teaches the absolute necess necessity of repentance before anyone can be saved. And this repentance, which is a product of regeneration in the heart that opens blind eyes and produces faith in the heart or mind, must be proved or demonstrated by its fruits. We are not going to rest on outward privileges or outward union with the church or on our own good works. We must look solely to Christ by faith. But, the only way that we can tell if our faith and repentance are genuine is by our lifestyle. Our life choices and behaviors. And that is why Moses is such an excellent example of faith and conversion. Now, I'm not saying Christians are perfect. I'm not saying they're sinless. They're not. We struggle against sin. We fight and we fight and we fight. And there are sins that, are, that may, you may struggle with. But you have your you've accepted the, the Christian world and life view, and you're striving to obey Scripture. You've repented. You've rejected the world. 
Moses did not compromise with the world. He did not try to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. He totally dedicated himself to the Lord's side. He lost everything that he had in Egypt to follow God. And this, beloved, is precisely what we must all do. Give yourself to Christ and his kingdom without reserve. Say, I will follow Jesus no matter what the cost, no matter what the hazards or sacrifices. Look solely to Christ dying and bleeding for sinners for your justification and then pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example of Moses. What a glorious example. What an explicit example. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Bend our hearts. Cause us to love your holy word and do strive with every fiber of our being to be obedient to love your word and to follow it, to obey it. And forgive us when we fall short, and we fall short every single day. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to follow your Son. Ingrain these truths in our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.